It's a new year. It's 2021. There have been a lot of changes. And one of the more positive changes I am pleased to report is the relaunch of the No Limits podcast. Now, it's been very scatty up until this point. I've done an episode here, an episode there. Hasn't been very consistent because of how many plates that I've been spinning. But if you follow my social media, you know that very recently I left my job. And that means that I now have a lot more time and a lot more capacity to do the things that I'm passionate about, including things like this, including the podcast. So I've got a great guest for you today. We have a lot of things in common. We're both former soldiers. We're both triple amputees. We are both wounded on the battlefield. And we're both former Invictus Games athletes. My guest today is a friend of mine called Dave Watson. Anyone in the Invictus or injured veteran community will know Dave. He's a very out there, um, dare I say loud character. He's a great guy, um, been on a journey, lots of highs, lots of lows, and he's going to share them with you now. So sit back, relax. If you got feet, put them up. Here is Dave Watson. All right, Dave, welcome to the No Limits podcast. You are you are my very first guest of 2021. So thank you for popping my cherry for this, um, what hopefully <laughs> is going to be a bit more of a normal year this year. How's things? All good, mate. All good. Uh, thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Oh, mate, I, I know we've been back and forth with this a little bit and we've been trying to get it going. And, you know, 2021 started differently for me um i've i've left my job now so i've got a lot more time on my hands where i can invest in this kind of stuff and actually learn how it works and and spend more time doing it so i thought it'd be great to get you on mate because for anyone listening who isn't watching who doesn't know dave we have some striking commonalities um in the fact that we are both triple amputees uh, we're both veterans we both served abroad we both were injured abroad we both been through the rehab system and done a lot of things um not side by side i, I was through the system a lot earlier than you i think but you know in parallel uh, we we've kind of went down the same sort of path and had the same sort of experiences and that's what i'm going to talk about mate because people that follow me on social media that listen to this podcast before are probably bored to tears of hearing my story um i know i'm i get bored of telling it sometimes but i know you're very keen to share your story i know you're trying to get out there it's difficult right now but get on a stage share it with live audiences we talked just now you said you've been sharing it virtually via zoom and go to meeting and all that kind of stuff so i mean tell everyone your story man and start wherever you want and just talk us through it chronologically yeah, uh, so as you, as Mark's just said, we are both triple amputees. We both served. Uh, we've got we took the same route, as you will. Uh, I joined the military in two thousand and six. I joined the first Italian Scots Guards. So they're the tourist attraction in London, what stand outside Buckingham Palace, with the red jackets and the big bearskin hats. So 
why are you doing that job? We just call ourselves tourist attractions because people just go to London to have <laughs> photos with us. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but it is like that. That part, that part of the job, uh, were good. I enjoyed it. I lived in London for a year and a half. Um, and while living in London, do you know what I mean? You're always a weekend millionaire as soon as you get paid. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> everyone in the military, mate. <laughs> yeah. So like in London, we were a weekend millionaire. That rate. As soon as we got paid, we went out on the weekend. We'd spent our wages by Sunday. So, yeah. But I enjoyed the job. Standing outside Buckingham Palace, St. James's Palace, Tower of London. Um, I got to meet all the royal family. Uh, I danced with the Queen while nice. I did that job. Uh, so it's something I can tell my kids when they grow up yeah. that their dad's done this and the, the dad's been there with the Queen. Um, a little story while I was doing it, I was on the Tower of London. I was mm-hmm. on the back post. Uh, and that put that that post you've got a, like a road in front of you which is like a mile and a half long so the tourists can't really see you you look like a little dot to them but while I was there it was absolutely boiling hot one day and the queen come out with some orange juice and some biscuits and that and told me to sit in a little secret garden to my right hand side wow uh, which, which were nice of her uh, so I sat in there and I had some orange juice and that. And one of my captains walked around the corner. I worked on, I worked on my post. Okay. And he's going mad. He's, he's walked into this garden and he's gone absolutely nuts. Effing and blinded at me. Who the effing hell has told you you can sit here? I'm like... He wouldn't let me get a word in, and he's just deaf and blind. He's like, you, you effing tell me who, who said you can sit here, I'm going to have a word with him. And I went, really? He went, yeah, you tell me, well, the Queen. And he turned around, <laughs> went, oh, well, he turned around to me, oh, carry on then. Do you know what I mean? He went, carry on. You and she had left by that point? <laughs> yeah, she'd left. she left. She didn't, like, she didn't sit with me. She just told me to go in that garden, have me orange juice and okay. some biscuits and take my bursting off. Um, gotcha. But when we, when he when the captain walked around, he was going absolutely mad. But when I told him the Queen told me I could sit here, he, he wound it in. So oh, carry, yeah, carry on. Do you know what I mean? Like, he shit brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. But yeah, so, like, I love that kind of job. Uh, and you had a, you, you used to have a lot of women writing the numbers down and put like putting them in your buff belt. Really? Like you used to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any men? So. <laughs> depending depending uh, you know what I mean yeah. depending um, but yeah I used to enjoy it used to get a lot of women writing the numbers and putting it in the buff belt and that and like just saying ring me happy days I never did I never obviously did. obviously um, I'll tell you what I want to ask you actually because yeah it's a set of I kind of know the answer anyway but I guess a lot of people that listen aren't so you joined the army and that attracted you, right? The the ceremonial side of stuff. So wearing the bearskin, you know, looking after the palace, the, the marching and all that kind of stuff. But that isn't all you do, is it? Like you don't you don't just join the army and do that. There's there's two sides of it, isn't there? There's the there's that side, the fancy yeah. side, the the you know, get on camera, do the ceremonial side, and then there's obviously 
the down in the dark on your belt buckle firefights and, and operations. So for anyone listening, because I didn't know this for a long time, um, you, you know, that's not all you do. You don't guard the palace and, you know, stay in the UK. You still do war fighting stuff, infantry stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that's, that's when I, when, when I went to London before I joined the military, like I used to, I used to see them guys stood outside Buckingham Palace and all the rest of it, and I, I thought to myself, I thought, well, they must work for the Queen right. herself, and they're just guarding themselves. Mm-hmm. But it weren't until I joined the Scottish Guards that I realised, when I was joining them, that they are, they are military. I didn't think they were. Okay, if you, if you know what I mean. But it, like, every day is a learning day. You know what I mean. So did you, that's interesting. So when you went, I'm trying to get med around this. So you saw those guys, you liked what they did. You wanted to do what they did, but you had no idea they were actually an army regiment. Yeah. But then you turned up what at the career center and you, you said, I want to, I want to do this. I want to wear the bear skin, um, do the Mm. ceremonial thing. And is that when you found out that as well as That that, they, yeah, when still, I turned up at yeah. the Korea, yeah, when I turned up at the Korea's office, it was then I found out they are actually military. So and did thought, that did that not change your decision? Knowing that no. you would have to go to war or anything? No, because I've all like, I've always wanted to join the military. Always. And getting to know that they did that and the combat role. Mm-hmm. I thought it's a win-win situation for me because I'm doing both. Right. So, yeah, like, and then plus I found out as well that when I when I joined the Scots Guards, that my granddad's brother, when he was my age, was in the Scots Guards. Oh wow! And he was similar age to me, so I kept it in the family. And how old were you, mate, when you started? I was. 17, 17, going up to 18. That's when you went through training, right? Yeah, that's when I, went, when I joined, I went through training, that, yeah. And how did you find that? Training? Well, that was just... It, it, it's weird, really, because there's it's two sorts of fitness. Mm-hmm. Like, civilian life, I, I was pretty fit because I used to play football, I used to, like, I used to run. Uh, so I thought I were a fit lad, mm-hmm. but then when I joined the military and I did my military fitness, it's a whole new level, yeah. a whole new level of fitness. Some days I felt absolutely drained mm-hmm. that I didn't want to move. I were aching all over. I've never felt that kind of aching. You know what I mean? Yeah. And. I, I I ran the phone uh, to my to my parents saying I just want to come home. It's 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 like so hard, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I've got that I've got that kind of head where I've got to finish something I start. Right. Yeah. And I think I just, with the fitness. And all... Sorry, I was just going to say. Like, I think with the fitness in the military, it's where it's different to, I guess, your average civilian 
fitness kind of regime is that it is it's a lot more aggressive it's a lot more intense there's a higher volume of it so i think if you sat down and calculated how many hours average a day you're actually because you know you don't walk from one place to another either you run everywhere you know you're carrying heavy weights all the time you know big bargains day sacks you're doing gym sessions you know I, i don't know what you call them but we called like the obstacle courses bottom field you know, and it, it and it is if you know if you're not in the classroom while you're on camp, you're doing that. So it's I think it's the volume of it, the intensity of it, and whereas that's very different to finishing work, going to the gym for an hour and a half, and then going back and having a warm bath at home, and you know going at it the next oh, day. Yeah. So yeah, I, I get what you're saying, mate. But it's it's kind of like the shock of shock of capture, isn't it? Yeah, because it's just like like I said, I used to play football when I when I were like on, on Sibby Street. But it was the same again. I used to play football on a Sunday. Go home, have a shower, get changed and go to the pub. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that was my fitness done for the day. Mm-hmm. And then I'd probably do do something do something else a couple couple of times a week. But in the military, you're doing it like seven days a week and about yep. f- five times a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember it's, it well. It's 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 that it's that what just gets you. Do you know what I mean? Doing doing so much fizz in one day. So what kind of got you through the difficult times? Because anyone that's been through military training, if if they say they didn't have low days when they wanted to quit and just go back to the their cozy life, then they're lying. But you know, on them lowest of the low days when you're like, do you know what? I've made a mistake here. I, I don't want to do this for 22 plus years. I'm, I'm going home. What got you through those days? Well, like I said, I've got, I've got one of them heads where I, like once I start something, I've got to finish it. But when, when I was having my low days, I remember when I was in training, one of, one of the sergeants, what were there, he was actually from around where I lived. Okay. And he just, he, do you know where people just see things in you? Mm-hmm. Like you can, you can do it. I think he's seen something in, in me. And he, he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me because uh, he knew I could do it. And having that behind you and like not wanting to let your family down mm-hmm. after you've, you want to, like, you want to show them that you can do it. And, when I was joining, I had a lot of people turn around to me and say, "What are you joining the military for? You, you, you won't do it. You, you'll leave after a couple of weeks." Mm-hmm. And I just kept thinking of that as well. Yeah, like people saying I can't do it, so I wanted to prove them wrong as well that I could do it. I think there's a lot of important bits to pick out of what you just said there, mate. You know, having that man, that sergeant, kind of mentor you and bring out that part in you that he saw that you didn't you know that that's a hugely important part of i think any anyone's life at any stage particularly when you're young when you're only 17 and you're 18 and you don't have that concrete belief in yourself or what you're capable of because you've never really pushed yourself that far having someone like that is is a huge help and i think it you know i I kind of had something similar to that and it really opened my mind up 
to what I was capable of because every week and every day that you progress and it gets slightly harder, but you overcome it, you start to think, hold on, I, I actually, I'm pretty capable. You know, my mind is yeah. saying, stop, 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 stop. But my body's like only probably halfway to shutting down or, or yeah. stopping, you know? Um, and and that, I think that's huge, you know, just having someone to, to edge you along a little bit, to give you that confidence that perhaps you're lacking. Now, yeah, yeah, you also definitely. said, you said as well, another thing that I think is important is that you didn't want to let your family down. And and I find that that I found has been a a good strategy for for a lot of things in my life. I don't mean necessarily not wanting to let my family down, but I mean making it about something other than yourself, a bigger cause, a bigger picture. You know, you think, oh, if I don't do this, this won't happen, which is, you know, saying I want to happen or this person will get let down or this person, you know what I mean? You made it about something bigger than yourself. I think that's what is so powerful. And we've both been in these circles in the charity world. You know, it's it's not yeah. about us as benefactors of charitable giving. It's about putting those organizations on a bigger platform yeah, for the bigger the map, picture. Yeah for the bigger picture, you know? And like I said, that's, that was a, a big motivator for me. Um, and then you said one other thing and I forgot what it was now. There was three things you said. And you were having, you were having that, the guys, what were, the guys what were telling me I won't make it. Right. I'd be home in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And again, that is, I think that's a big motivator for anybody when people say, oh, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that it's a little bit like a red flag to a ball, isn't it? You know, and just, I think just getting in your head and imagining the stupid look on their faces when you walk past them with uniform on or whatever it is, a gold medal, they said you couldn't get a business. They said you couldn't build just going past that person, you know, having achieved what they said you couldn't, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that money can't buy. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, then that that were exactly the same because when I passed our training, um, I remember going home. I remember going home because uh, as soon as I passed out of training, some some of the guys in different regiments went straight to Afghan. Mm-hmm. Straight after training, uh, depending on what the regiments wanted them to do, it's what you wanted to do. So when I finished my regiment put me back in the careers office for two weeks mm-hmm. just to let the guy, just to let the guys know who want to join the military, what training's exactly like, uh, what you'll need to do and how your head has to be when you go in there. And I did that for two weeks. So I remember because I'm impressed and, recruiting centre I went in I went into the shopping centre and I was walking around in my combats mm-hmm. and I remember passing one of the guys who <laughs> said I wouldn't do it yeah uh, and I just turned around so I, like I shouted his name and he turned around and he was like confused because he didn't recognise me in combats with mm-hmm. my burial and when he turned around and he seen me he was like shit Right. I said, well, you, you said I couldn't do it. Look at me. I'm here. 
Yeah, and what was he, he doing just, with his life at that point? Uh, he was working in a pub. Okay. Behind a bar. Right, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's a great job, but, yeah. you know, I bet you felt 10 feet tall compared to him. Yeah, definitely. Just te- like just showing. I didn't really have to say anything. He knew as soon as he'd seen me that I'd gone through training and I passed it. And I just made him eat his word. You know what I mean? Do you know what? Something that always used to get me through it when I was going through training and something that I've used in my life ever since then was, I don't know how I just naturally managed to do it, but I would always project forward and imagine, okay, I've quit now. I'm sat on the train. I'm about to go home and I could potentially bump into that guy who said that I wasn't going to make it. And I imagine the way I'd feel if I bumped into him and they turned around and went, see, dickhead, I told you you couldn't do it. And that feeling, yeah. even though I hadn't quit, that the thought of that feeling was enough to drag me out of it and go, well, I'm not ever going to feel like that. Never. That's, that's, that's what I thought as well. That's exactly what, what I thought as well. So fast Everyone. forward a little bit. So you've done, you've done all this, you know, you, you deployed to Afghanistan quite quickly, didn't you? So I went over in 2010. So quite soon after you finished your training, you were already out there yeah, yeah. at the pointy end of the spear. Yeah. So talk talk us through that a little bit then. The, you know, the train when you got told you were going, the training, your headspace, and then hitting the ground. Yeah, so getting told we were going out to Afghanistan. Um, yeah, every soldier in the military knows they'll have to go somewhere once or twice in their life. Um, but to get told that quick was a bit of a shock. And we got given our roles when we were out there. And you can back me up on this as well, Mark, that the military, they'll give you a job to do and then it'll change <laughs> 10 minutes after. <laughs> yep. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um so we got given our role out in Afghanistan, what we were doing, we got told everything. So we started doing our training for that. And then three, four days later, they were like, oh, no, we're not going there anymore. We're not doing this. Okay. We're doing this. So we're like, right. So we got appointed. We, we, we were meant to be working with um, the SAS. Mm-hmm helping them out over in over in Afghanistan. So we met up with we met up with loads of SAS guys and we were training together. And I'll tell you something, when I was doing that training, I realized how nuts the SAS lads are. Yeah, they're different. They are like, they are like off their heads. Mm-hmm. Um we were, we were on the ranges, uh, we are doing our weapon drills. So usually us, when we were on the ranges, we'd have our line and we couldn't go past that line while, while firing. Right. The SES lads, we've got two guys walking on the range. So one's walking forwards, the other guy's got his back to him. So he's, right. he's protecting the back, the other guy's protecting the front. And the target pops up, the front guy fires, 
And then he turns around and goes, right, stoppage. So the guy who's got his back to him has to swing the rifle over his head. Right. No helmet on. No helmet on, no nothing. Yep. Swing the rifle over his head and then fire on top of his head at the target. <laughs> and just mad stuff like that. No, I was like, ah, what, what is it? I was like, what is going on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was nuts. Um, so we did, we did all our training with the SAS and then... Our job changed again. Okay, so what were you doing now then? Here we go. So we ended up going to um, Nadi Ali. We were just on, we were just like routine foot patrols, going around the little village uh, and just protecting that and trying to work the Taliban out of that, get them away from there. Okay. Uh, that, That one stuck. So that that's what we did while we were out there, but it was building up to leaving the UK to fly out to Afghan, um, doing all your training, all your first aid training. It were all intense training, yeah, all intense. Um, doing like courses if you if you've got if you're on a course. Uh, like Pashtu course and all that lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I enjoyed the training up to it. Uh, it was really hard work. But then we got that like week's leave before we, before we were going. Mm-hmm. So we got our week's leave, went home, spent time with friends and family. And I was saying, like a lot of guys were talking to me saying, oh, are you like, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? And if anyone turns around and says, "Yeah, I'm feeling fine, not a problem," mm-hmm. like you've got, you know, they're lying because there's always something going on inside your body, knowing that you are going to a war zone, right? And something could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was always inside me, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to tell my like my mates and everything like that, like, yeah, I'm, I'm shitting myself, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just want to like, yeah, I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine. The the worst bit were um, saying bye to your family uh, yeah. when you were going back going back to your camp, knowing that this might be the last time you ever see them. Yeah. I always had that going around in my head. Um. So yeah, I said I said my goodbyes to my family and that. I got on the train back to Catrick, got back to Catrick, and we got told it's been delayed for another week. Welcome to the military. I know, I mean, it's been delayed mm-hmm. for another week. So yeah, that's fine. Uh, I spent I spent most of my time in camp. I didn't go home because I didn't I didn't want to relive what I've just left yep I've said I've said my goodbyes I've said this I've said that so I wanted to stay in camp and just boom there you go Um, I don't even think I don't even think I phoned my family back home just to say it's been delayed I I think I just left it left that bit there do you know what I mean yeah 
because you're used to um, that you know the hurry up and wait thing the change of detail in the yeah. military but your family aren't and it's yeah. it that could be an emotional roller coaster you know they've said they're good boys and then you ring up and go actually i've got another week now and so then yeah. that relief sets in but then and we all know what it's like when you're living out of a bag or whatever in the military or you live on camp those two days before you go back you get the blues so then you've got to redo that again but it's not just you it's they're going through that as well so yeah, I see. I see why you did that and where you're coming from. It's probably a better thing all round just to stay stum and yeah. crack on. So I kept, I kept stum, didn't say anything, um, and then it got. We were, we were travelling out on the Sunday, the Sunday night. We were travelling, uh, so I, I stopped all week in camp and. Sunday morning come, uh, we've all gone, we've all turned up, like, combat's on ready, you get all your bags packed, um, only to find out that the regiment had formed everybody's family. Okay. Uh, to invite them to camp. As you were leaving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a bit strange. I don't know. So we like we were we were there and everyone just started turning up. Everyone's right. parents, girlfriends, wives and everything like that. Uh so they spent the day with us in camp, showing them I was showing them around camp, uh took them in the naffy and that. And then it got to that time they stayed with us up until we all got on the coach and we all set off. That's weird. It is. It is like I I thought it were, um, but yeah, like my family had turned up, my mum, my dad, uh, my grandma had turned up. Uh, the only good thing about my grandma turning up is she brought a big bag of like chocolate in, big bag <laughs> of chocolate to. For, for my coach journey to Bride's Note and a big bag of chocolate, uh, right. everything, cream, eggs, Mars bars, the lot, mate. Uh, so my grandma brought me loads of morale for while while we we're on the coach. Uh, good old grandma. And it 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 were it were weird, um, but yeah, I got on the coach. My family are there on the drill square. Everyone's family just there mm-hmm. while we all set off. And as soon as we set off, the families got in cars and they went back home. Um, so we drove, we were on our way to Bryce Norton, got to Bryce Norton, and I think our flight was something like 11 o'clock at night. Okay. So, um, so we were waiting around Bryce Norton for about five hours, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and that would just, it's just boring, you know what I mean? It's like being yeah. sat on an airport. Yep. Waiting. And I'll, like, when you sit doing nothing, things are going through your head over mm-hmm. and over again. Especially sat in an airport waiting to go to Afghan. A lot mm-hmm. of things are going around in your head. Um, but you just have to like try and find things to do. Uh, keep yourself busy while you're on the airport uh, and just keep entertained. So I, rem- I remember just watching 
films and stuff like that, or what playing on my phone or something like that on on the just trying to take my mind off things. And it weren't it, it was just weird. Yeah, you become pretty good at that in the military, don't you? Because you're always sat around in some shithole waiting for something to happen. Uh, You know, I remember the days, this is going to make me sound really old, but before we really had phones. Um, And I think that they had just started attaching DVD players to laptops. So whoever had a laptop and a big CD wallet full of DVDs was like the hero (laughs) for that that day. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you, you get you get used to that stuff, don't you? It's it is boring, yeah. but I guess in in a way, it's kind of beneficial because you learn how to occupy your mind, your brain, your mind, yeah, yeah. and to try um, and stay positive. So yeah, we we're just waiting around, and then we got on flight, and we got to we got to Camp Bastion, and we got off the flight, and it was then everything just went bang. I'm here. Yeah. This this is really happening. Um and then they, f- they flew us out, they flew us out to our like VCPs and our wherever, wherever we were all going. So I turned up at my VCP, uh, went in and we literally had two ISOL containers. One they were our beds. So you put your beds up in there, mm-hmm. um, and then there were a gap in the middle of both containers. And what we did, we thought, well, what can we do to try and make this more homely? So we put like a sheet over the top for like a roof. Uh, we dropped some some on some down the front we drew like windows drew windows on either side like flower pots on the windowsill we cut a door <laughs> we, <laughs> we cut a door in it um we cut a door in it to walk through uh you walked in we made our own like settee and armchair our sandbags mm-hmm. um we had our table set up with like our rations and and our bottles of water and that we made like a little fridge out of the Essian wall mm-hmm. so we could keep our water cool uh, and one of the I remember one of the lads were he were really good at drawing and like we had a 10 man ration box an empty 10 man ration box so we, he ripped the top bits off and he had the bottom bit and he drew like a a Sony a Sony TV on it <laughs> so the outline of a Sony TV, right? And he drew in the middle like Family Guy sat on settee. <laughs> really? And we pin, yeah, and we pin, we pin that up on the wall uh, to like we're watching TV, and it's just same like made our own gym stuff, mm-hmm. like a, a weight bench with sandbags, and then we had the, the scaffolding bar with sandbags on either side for your weights. Yeah. Uh, and then we knocked a scaffolding bar into the SEM wall for your chin up bar. Uh-huh. Doing all that. So we just made it we like we made it as homely as we could to feel relaxed and at ease, you know. Yeah. I think it's another thing that you get good at in the military is you know, you deploy to some shithole area and you become like 
Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. You start becoming an interior yeah. designer and <laughs> using sandbags for curtains and, you know, all these crazy, like you say, making yeah. chairs and sofas out of bits of whatever's lying around and makeshift gyms. And, you know, because you do have a lot of time as well when you, when you are deployed, you know, if you're not patrolling, yeah. firefighting, whatever it is, you've got a lot of downtime just to, you know, try and kill the time really. Yeah, so, yeah and that, that's where you work from at the VCP. Yeah, yeah. So we were at a vehicle checkpoint. Yeah, um, we was with the Afghan National Army. Mm-hmm. So we were with a few of them. Uh, they was at the opposite side. Like our our VCP were pretty a pretty decent size. So they were over at one side, and we were at the other. We were working together. Um, and it would just, like, we're not being out there before. I've not seen it before, but it were, it were nuts how they live. Yeah. Uh, so we, I went outside, like me and one of theirs were going outside the wall to stand on the checkpoint, and I was keeping a watch out. And I turned around to have a look, see what he was doing, and he was eating this, like this bag of weed. Yeah, he was eating, and I'm like, "What are you doing, man?" Mm-hmm. And that's just that's just what they do. Yeah, it's a different it's world. Just it's just completely different. But yeah, like you patrols out there every time you went out on patrol, like your ass were always five p, fifty p. Don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when the firefight's going to hit you. Um, it would just hard sometimes it's there. funny isn't it because you become I, I can see why people some people struggle mentally with stuff because you're like you're hyper vigilant for the whole tour you know I, I always remember leaving the the base that we were working from and you know you, you got to imagine this big Hesco barrier war and then there's a door now that door is like a sniper's dream because they know you're going to yeah. be there like static for, and so literally every time it's your turn, you're like one, two, three, and you run out the door, you're hard targeting left to right, just never knowing whether a sniper bullet's going to come winging your way or you're going to run and stand on an IED and you're just, your senses are heightened all the time. Yeah. And you, you break, your brain works in different ways. Um, Cause I remember, I remember being in our VCP uh, we were chilling out. We weren't going on patrol that day. Uh, we were chilling out, and I remember getting in. I, I took my mankini out with me, and I thought, right, <laughs> stick, stick my mankini on, and I'll like I'll chill out in the sun. So I had my boots on, my mankini on, and my military military cap, and I just led like sat there getting a suntan. And then next thing, we uh, we ended up getting into a firefight. Yeah. All Rounds pinging over, and I'm like, oh shit! Mm-hmm. So I ran back into my bed space. Didn't have time to put my trousers on or anything like that. So I shoved my body armor on, mm-hmm. my helmet on. Yeah, got my weapon. I jumped on top of Essien Wall, set up my LMG, and I'm there firing away. My ass hanging out at the back of me, like body armor, with my mankini going through the middle of it. So. There's, t- nice. <laughs> there's times out there to have a laugh in that, you know what I mean? But there's yeah, like you've got to be on the ball as well when something happens. Absolutely, mate. Now, um, if you don't mind, mate, just talk us through, you know, the day that 
you were injured. Um, was it on yeah. a foot patrol? Yeah, we were on a foot patrol. We were on a 53-man foot patrol. Uh, so we went out. We patrolled. We went out early hours at morning. Um, I think about... I think we went... We set off at about half past two in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. 53 of us went out, patrolling all the way around the villages. Um, and we were checking... We were checking compounds as well because we've had inklings that some compounds have been making explosives in there so we've gone in there and checked a few of them nothing really going on so we're carrying on and we were walking up we were walking up like a a back alley type thing if you will mm-hmm. walking up this back alley and you've got all the local popping the heads over the wall Okay, and I'm like, what this like? What they're looking at? Yeah, what's, what's happening here? Um, and there were like I remember a dog, a dog with a like always barking at us, everything like that. So me being an LMG gun, I had a pistol on my leg, so mm-hmm. I pulled the pistol and I rolled, I rolled it to the dog, just in case it went through anyone. Because you don't know what's going, on, you don't know what's going to happen. So I'm holding it, I'm holding it at the dog. Uh, the dog, well, it ran off, and then we got to the top of that back, like back alley type thing, and it was where one of our mastiffs got blew up a few days before. Right. And the only thing what was there was one of the wheels, and you knew straight away that something's been set up with that wheel. So if we tried moving anything or something might go bang. So we left, we left that alone. We carried on. And as we were walking through this poppy field, the interpreter were getting messages over the radio, like the Taliban have got us surrounded. Uh, they've no, like we've nowhere to go. And, Everything going through my head, then thinking, "Oh shit, here we go, here we mm-hmm. go." But they were just watching us. They were surrounding us, but watching where we were going. And just to get out of the way, we we went into we were getting into a stream, and we've all got in it. Out of the third to last man out of fifty-three people. Okay. So the fiftieth guy, we've all got in this stream. The IED was. At on my right hand side, just on the edge of the water and the soil, right? Okay. Just on the edge, um, and I've got in, I've passed it, and then my mate were getting in. He so slipped. Saw it. I saw it. Yeah. Okay. I saw it. It was, it was there, and my mate slipped behind me. And I've turned around to go and help him. Right. And as I've turned around, it's just gone bang. That same IED? Same IED. It's right. just gone bang. Okay. Um, we, like, I, I don't know whether I stepped on it and detonated it or it were like they detonated it. Still not 100% sure about that. But I, the only thing I, the only thing I know is 
but I was conscious through it all. But when it first went bang, because I turned and I rolled in my LMG with my arm, my, my arm underneath it, yeah. to run out my mate with this hand to go and pick him up. As I've turned around, it's gone bang and the my LMG's lifted. Yeah. Smashed me in the face. Um you don't know how like, how fast that would that have hit from there to there mm-hmm. with the, the impact. You don't know. You could you could have been sixty to eighty mile an hour pressure. Yeah, you know what absolutely. I mean? uh, so that hit me in the face, and then it, it was just like being hitting the football with your face when it hits you square in the face, and you have that like little blackout moment, and then yeah. you you you're all right. That's what it was like. But I woke up in the water. Okay, so I, was, it, I was going to ask that. Were you, did you go underwater or what? Yeah. So it's like the AED lifted me uh, about 10 foot in the air and I've landed back first in the water. So all the water's come over top of me. And because you didn't, I didn't know exactly what had happened. I'm trying to get my head above water, like pushing the water away. And I couldn't do it because you're drowning. Just... Yeah, because yeah, 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 I've yeah. lost my arm, my arm. I couldn't, I couldn't get my head above water, and I'm like, the water's going down my throat. I'm drowning. Um, but the guys have come over, and one more people. What don't think your life flashes before your eyes? Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. It does. Mine, like mine, mine flashed before my eyes. Um, they dragged me out of the water. They sat me on the side, and they said, "Dave, do not fucking look down." I'm like, "What? Went, do not fucking look down." I'm like, Ugh. "I'm like spitting. I'm spitting teeth out. Uh, my jaws broke. Mm-hmm. Um, I had like loads of shit in my mouth as well, like dust and mud and." Yeah, it was just horrible. All my all my lips were my lips were split. My dad's cut my chin open, um, and it was just like I don't know. Um, like what was kind of going through your mind there? Uh, my life's over. My, like that is what that is what was going through my mind. I thought, right, that's it. I'm gone. Mm-hmm. I'm gone. Um, but they're saying, don't look down. But I, ha- I had to see what had gone on. I had to see what had happened. Mm-hmm. So I looked down at my legs. I looked down at my legs, and all I seen was my shin bones. Yeah, poking so, out. Yeah, so all my, all my calf had gone, my foot had gone. All what were there were my shin bones. Yeah. Um, and I thought, oh shit. Like I've I've lost both legs. Um and the med like the medic with the medic there, he were getting the tourniquets around my leg as fast as he could. And as he were tightening the tourniquets, like I did I were in no pain because of all the adrenaline and mm-hmm. everything like that going in your body. I were in no pain. The only the only bit of pain I felt was them 
tightening them tourniquets to my legs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I felt that, and as they tightened it, my shin bone shot off. Right, like two, like two bullets coming out of a gun because of the pressure. Okay. Um, and I seen that. I seen my shin bone like literally, yeah, fly off my leg, and just miss my medic's head by like that much. It was just like so unreal. And as they were doing that, I got like pins and needles in my arm. Like really, I looked, I looked, pins and needles, isn't it? Huh? It's like pins and needles, but like super intense, throbbing, yeah. numbness, uncomfortableness, but not painful. Yeah. It, it's, it's like, well, it's like, say you trap your fingers in a car door, but like a yeah. hundred times worse. Yeah, I remember. Um, so I felt like pins and needles and shooting pins. And I like lifted my arm and my arm was still there, but it was hanging on by its tendons. Mm-hmm. Um, and the skin had separated from the hand. Yeah. So the skin had separated from the hand. My my hand, all I could see was my hand in with the bone, and it was just dangling off. And I looked at it, and I just went, "Oh, I've lost that. I've lost my arm." And I, I give me, I remember giving myself a high five and watching <laughs> it wobble, um, just to, just to like just to like see a letter, nice knowing right. you, you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, so Mate, I, give, I always I try. I always try to explain this to people like, cause I think when you tell these kind of stories, people try and put themselves in your situation yeah. and it is such a surreal, weird feeling when you're there. Right. And you're looking around at stuff and you're like, this ain't fucking real. What am I looking at here? And your brain yeah. doesn't quite compute it. And you're like, well, I should be in a lot of pain, but I'm not, I'm very uncomfortable. Yeah. My my legs are throbbing, my arms tingling like really bad, but I should be screaming in pain. And why did my shin bone just fl- just fly off? I don't, I can't make sense of what just happened. What I've just seen it doesn't make any sense. It's just it's just like you it's just like you just said. We should we should have been led there, screaming and shouting and mm-hmm. doing what we do. But just think before we joined the military and got a paper cut. Yeah. No, we were, scre- <laughs> we were screaming. I tell you what it is, mate. Like, if if you were stood in front of me now and I said, "Dave, I'm going to punch you in the face," the anticipation adds to the pain. Whereas if you yeah. had no idea and I just came up behind you and went whack, it would hurt, but it wouldn't hurt as much as if you anticipated it. Do you know what no. I mean? Like with a paper cut. Yeah. That's why I think, as well as all the bodies, you know, the the adrenaline release, the endorphins, whatever the chemicals that get released to uh, to combat the pain, you know, that that whole combination of of, of stuff, just yeah. it's it's incredible that how your body deals with it. Oh, I know. Like it was, I just I thought like when you led there, you're not in pain. You're like, what is going on? You know what I mean? What mm. what is actually going on? I should be screaming like you just said. I should be screaming now. Yeah, and you kind um, of know it's real, but your brain's like, "What the fuck am I looking at? I don't understand 
what I'm looking at. Why is my shin bone has just popped off and flown out my medic, but that doesn't make any sense. So why have I just seen it? And it, it's bizarre. Like the, the thoughts that go through your head. And like you say, yeah. I remember just laying in the sun with, with pretending I was on the beach with the heat beating down on my face, just like, mm. right, I'm going to fall asleep now. Like I would, if I was sunbathing in Spain, but this time I'm not going to wake up. Yeah. Well, I, I would just, I would just cracking the jokes. Uh-huh. There and then, you know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. like all, all the guys, all the guys are turning around to me. Oh, are you all right? Are you all right? Are you all right? I said, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, but are you? I said, yeah, I'm all right. But my fucking <laughs> mum and dad are not going to be happy about this. <laughs> That's what I said. That is what I said, right? And it just, even when you say, my mum and dad are not going to be happy about this, it still doesn't register what's gone on. No, no. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But I'm like having my sips of water. I'm trying to get all the the grit and dirt out of my mouth. Uh, I'm still spitting teeth out. And they put me on the stretcher. They put me on the stretcher. And I, I remember turning around to them going, right, guys, see you later. I'm going up. Seeing see in another three and a half months. I'm going to mm-hmm. pub <laughs> stuff like that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um and the two of my mates were putting me on, on the flight on the flight back to Bastion. And like in case people know oh, the back of the back of the flight is angled like that, so you can mm-hmm. walk up it. So the guys are carrying me up. One of my mates slips and drops me. Cheers, mate. And I turned around to him. I said, whoa. I said, do you not think I've been fucking injured enough? You just, wanted, <laughs> you just decided to drop me. <laughs> and he's like, ah, ah, ah. So he picked me up, put me on. And as soon as, as soon as you get put on the back of that flight, even looking around that flight, it's so unreal. It's like yeah. a hospital on the back of a flight, mm-hmm. on the back of a plane. And all the, all the staff, well, the medics and everything what are on that flight, they are at your becking call. They are at your side trying to sort you out. They're straight on you. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they're asking you have, you, have you had morphine? I'm like, no, I didn't have morphine. I wasn't in any pain. Um, but they put me to sleep. They put me to sleep. They did what they had to do on the flight. And I woke up as I landed in Bastion. Okay. Taking me into fit in into theater. I walk up outside. Uh, they were talking to me, and I turned around to him because at the time I was smoking at the time. And I said, Is it possible I can have a cigarette before I go in? Because it might, it might be my last one. <laughs> wow, <laughs> it might be my last one. So, can I can uh, can I have a cigarette before I go in? They went, No, no, I can't do it. Just took me straight in, put me back to sleep, did what they did. And from there, I woke up with them putting me to sleep out like in Bastion. I woke up in Selly Oak in Birmingham. So Selly Oak was still around when you were hit, yeah? Because I know it got ripped down a, a couple of years after I left. But it got took it got took down. Well, I was I was in Selly Oak for two weeks, and then mm-hmm. they transferred us from there to the new QE. Oh, okay. Um, okay. and then it got it got ripped down 
a couple of, a couple of years ago because they've built houses on there now. They've done that now, have they? Yeah, yeah. Because okay. I, I don't, I don't live far from that now. Okay. So, so let's make some comparisons because I, I did six weeks in Selly Oak because um, the, QE, the QE wasn't built then. So you did two weeks in Selly Oak. How long did you do in the QE? I did, I did two weeks in Selly Oak, a week in the QE, and then I was discharged. To Headley Court or back home? Back home for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Headley Court. So this is the interesting part for me because this is where I think this this part of it when you wake up in hospital and you're gradually weaned off the medication and you can make sense of what's going on and you understand the extent of your injuries and you know you start trying to wrap your head around it what kind yeah. of things are going through your mind at that stage um well when I well I'll when I were at home I had some time with friends and family and guys come and see me and talk to me and that. Um, and then the day I was going to Headley Court, things were going through my mind like, what's it going to be like? Like, what we're going to be doing? Uh, just, just all that, all that stuff. And what in what injuries am I going to see at Headley Court? Um, okay, and I, t- I turned up, and I f- I f- who did I see? Who was the first guy I seen? I forgot his name now, but turned up, and I I seen someone with both the legs missing. Uh, I think it was Craig. Remember Craig? Yeah. With his nose was missing and everything as well. Yeah, nose were missing and everything like that. And I thought, shit. And it was true what someone said to me. No matter what injuries you get, there's always someone worse than what you are. Do you know what, mate? I had a very similar experience. So when I got to Headley Court, I was put in a one-man, a single-man room behind the nurse's station because I was classed as high dependency. And on the first day, I was getting wheeled behind the nurse's station. So there's there's room one, room two, room three, room four. I'm room four. So I've got to go past the other three to get there. And in room two was a kid called Stephen Vouse. And Stephen was 19. And had a, I think a grenade went off by his head. And he had a huge portion of his skull missing. And he would be up all night screaming in pain, he had to be craned in and out of his bed. You know, so the first day I turned up to rehab, I saw that and I thought, shit, I've got it pretty easy, if I'm honest, compared to this guy. You know? So you're right, yeah. That, that's that's the same, you know what I mean? It's like, there's always someone worse than what you are. And mm-hmm. when I got there, I thought it had been, you know, like, what, like, don't get me wrong, I watched, when I were at home for like two weeks, I watched a couple of like military films and everything like that. And I'd seen like the Americans on this film chilling out at the rehab centre and watching TV and everything like that. I turned up, I got my programme, circuits half past seven in the morning. I'm like, what? 
<laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. I've just like I've just been blown up. Just been blown up. Lost both my legs and my right arm. I want to relax for a bit. And I'm getting I'm getting a piece of paper with my, with my program on, and I've got circuits at half past seven in the morning. I'm like, what's all that about? I know you want a bit of downtime, don't you? And they're throwing you straight back into the Monday morning fizz yeah. routine. And they were straight at you as well with the shaving and that. You're still in the military, so you shave. Oh, I know, I know, I remember it. And it was difficult. So, that. were you? So you, same as me, you've lost your right arm. Yeah. But were you right-handed before? Yeah. Right. So that this is one of the smaller things that a lot of people overlook: learning to brush your teeth, to shave, to do anything with your left hand. That's that because <laughs> when they tried when they tried getting me shaving at Headley Court, I said, "Man, I ain't going nowhere near my face with a, with a blade." I said, "I used to be right-handed." I said, "I'm not doing it with my left hand." I said, "I'll end up cutting my throat." It's yeah. not gonna happen. Yeah, it's tricky. And then one of one of the uh, one of the nurses had gone somewhere and they come back with an electric shaver. Ah, like, uh, okay. They got you. They got you. They done me there. They done me there. Um, but yeah, like learning to learning to write and doing everything else with my non-dominant arm. Uh, at first, I, I, I was struggling a lot with writing mm-hmm. and just doing other stuff. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. But it's that. Practice makes perfect. Mm. You know what I mean? It's happened. You've got to live with it. So use it. Yeah. I mean, you uh, you've got no other choice. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. And I I always I've always said from day one that being a triple amputee is like being a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. You've got you've got a jigsaw. You've done this jigsaw, and your one piece missing. Right. Where where, where that one piece? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I like when I were at home, uh, like making a brew, the cupboard were too high to get a cup. Okay. And I'm in my wheelchair, and it's like, how do I get out from down here? Do I get that cup from there? Mm-hmm. So it were like stand up in your wheelchair. Sit on the kitchen side, yeah. get your cup, put it down, get back in your chair, and away you go. So that's how I, that's how I did it. Like being a triple amputee is like a jigsaw puzzle. You've got your puzzle, and where the missing piece, we've got to put that piece together. Yeah, you got to figure everything out from scratch. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just, just, I'm just going to say, mate, I'm where my fascination lies with people is, is in like their thought process and their mindset. Right, so you you've come out of hospital, and you've had a couple of weeks at least to get your head round life, right? And the fact that you've had these injuries and that's never going to change. You know, you then start looking to the future and thinking, okay, what what's available? Can I get legs? Can I get an arm? Am I going to be in a wheelchair? Do I adapt the car? Adapt the house? Blah 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 blah. And then you get to rehab because that's where the hard work starts when you eventually get the yeah. legs and you start learning to walk, but. I, and I'm always so honest about this when I tell people I don't put on any alpha male macho bravado. You know, it was fucking hard, mate. Like the first time I walked parallel bars, 
I did one length up, one length down, and I was fucked. And I thought, hang on, I'm like one of the fittest blokes I know, and I can't even walk 10 meters. It's it's, it's hard. It's, it is hard. Um, but it's that, as you say, getting your legs and getting your arms. Like they come, they come and they send they send a guy out to the hospital. I don't know if you had it, but when I were in the hospital, a guy come from the prosthetic centre from Headley Court to have a look at your injuries and what they'll, what they'll need for when you get there. Mm-hmm. And he turned up and you you were talking to me. You were looking at my injuries, and he turned round to me and he said, "How tall was you before this happened?" And I went seven foot. <laughs> <laughs> and it like he just he just turned out like it was like it was like f off but in a nice way you know what I mean? yeah yeah you know yeah uh, but I I was I was six one I was six one before I got injured mm-hmm. um, and I just wanted I wanted to get that height back that's what I wanted okay but it's the same it's the same with any same with anyone I got. I got on my stubbies, mm-hmm. same as everyone else does, building them up. That was hard, working their muscles and yeah. everything like that, what you've not used for, like, what were it, three, four, five. It was seven weeks mm-hmm. after my injury that I got up, got up and walking on stubbies. And it was like you said, I'd only walk like, five minutes and I'd be absolutely blowing. Mm-hmm. I'd have to take them off and just rest because you're not used to it. Right. Um, but the more I got used to it, the happier I was. Yeah, it's just, you know, I was just trying to improve. I remember the first time doing it thinking there is no way that I can live the rest of my life like this. If this is how hard it is to walk a couple of meters, there's no way. But then day by day, you make these small incremental improvements, 1%, 2%, 3%, and it starts yeah. to become easier. And what was hard on Monday by Friday, it's not easy, but it's it's easier. And then it's as easier. the weeks roll past, the months roll past, everything becomes easier, more normal. And then, you know, you cross that line. You're like, actually, I, I see where this is going now. If I just keep putting the effort in and... Yeah. crossing these thresholds I'm going to be able to regain my independence in my life again definitely and did you get that feeling when you went from stubbies to like your full size legs like you're on top of a big tower looking down because you've not been that high for however long you were mate I'll tell you I'll tell you what because I was hit so early on and we can talk about this offline actually, because I'm just curious, but none of this stuff that that you went through was in place when I did it because no one, because I had to do it the first time. So stubbies yeah. weren't even a thing until I came back from America and told them about stubbies. I went straight from a wheelchair to full length prosthetics. And yet right. absolutely what you said, I stood up. It does something to your blood pressure, I think being either laying down or in the chair for so long, but you stand up straight or your organs then stretch out and your head just you just go lightheaded as hell and I, I remember every step I took shit in my pants that I was going to fall over because I was still so raw and sore and tender I thought if if I hit the deck now I'm just gonna that's it I'll probably die because it it that, was just it, so it's painful that, it's that counterbalance as well 
because, mm-hmm. right, your legs, your, your proper legs balance you out as a, as a human. Once you lose them, you're top heavy. Right. So if you, like, with me, I were, I were a big guy anyway. Um, so I've I've got on my legs, and if I if I had to just put my head a bit for bit forward when I run my full size legs, I'd go. It is a big head, though. Yeah, I've got, my, I've got a big head. <laughs> but like at the at the moment, at the moment, it's on upside down, and I've got a massive forehead. <laughs> um, I get you, it's, though, mate. It is just it's it's weird because uh, I went, like I said, I went back up to six foot one. And that counterbalance were just now. Nah, this is not happening. This is not yeah. happening at all. Um, so I went down to, I think he, I think I've gone down to five eleven or five twelve, mm-hmm. and it's just a lot easier, a lot easier walking shorter than it is being taller. Yeah, and even when you do build up your core stability, the the strength in your glutes, your lower back, your hip, and you and you're used to it, and you run around every day on prosthetics. It's still, if you're too tall, you know, getting up from the floor is harder. Getting out of a car is harder. Getting off a sofa is harder because that there's like a, I guess like an invisible hinge point, like with your hips. And there's an ideal height where it makes it just manageable to get up off the floor, off the, out of a car. Whereas if your lower legs are too long and your arms are not going to get any longer, you can't extend your, your real arm. It just makes everything worse. That's why I came down to five eight from six two. But it's that, it, it, it's that thing as well with with your legs because what I've seen because when I when I'm sat down now, like literally my my stumps are like flat on the chair, right, right. But if you were taller, the metal bar gets extended. Your your stump would be like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because your leg your legs are kicking up. So your leg, your legs will be like that, and having to stand up from that position to get your legs like that again, yeah. it's a lot harder than you think. Yeah, and that was a difficult thing, you know, aesthetically, to go from six foot two to five foot eight. You know, I hated stubbies in the beginning, but no, they're, so, they're so good for function, and and I love them now. I love them, but I hated them, and I hated the way I looked in the beginning. I needed a height that made me because I was quite big as well. I didn't want to look short and, and, and stocky, but I didn't want to look tall and skinny either. You know, like so it a, took a, Like a little fat umpa Yeah, I, mate, I don't know if you ever remember, but when I was a kid, when He-Man was a cartoon, there was this little man and he had springs for legs in He-Man and he had this little square metal helmet on and he used to fuck, <laughs> do a flying headbutt everyone. But he was like four foot, but massive, four foot tall, four foot wide. And, and it reminded me of that when I had stubbies on. You know what I mean? A little cartoon character, but yeah. I mean, what was the, what was your lowest point when you were learning to walk again? And how did you get out of that? Well, I've gone through, I've gone through, um, like I went through quite a lot actually when I, when, when I, when I happened, uh, cause I turned to the drink. Okay. I turned to the drink, uh, and I were like, borderline alcoholic because mm-hmm. I would drink I would just drink all the time because what I was thinking was that's it my life's over I'm stuck in a chair for the rest of my life I'm yeah. like, I, like I'm not going to do anything 
with one arm. I can't do this. I can't do that. So I turned to the drink, and then I got I got mixed up in the wrong in the wrong pe- in, within the wrong people, and I started doing a like drugs, which mm-hmm. I'm not happy with. But at the time, at the time, it was my getaway. Yeah, it was my happy place. Um, and it weren't until um. I remember going to, like, from Headley Court, we went to a weekend away at Stoke Mandeville, just doing, like, some games and stuff like that, seeing what, seeing what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to, like, the powerlifting. Yeah, I was, I was benching 75 kg on one arm. So, like, I was, I was pretty strong. Um, but then I found out that, I couldn't do that as a Paralympic Games because they don't do nothing one arm. They don't do a one arm bench press or anything like that. I know. So I went over to the discus and shot put circle, mm-hmm. and I threw my discus. I threw my shot put. And the coach, what were there, turned around and said, "Have you done this before?" And I said, "Only at school, not done it since." Mm-hmm. And she went, "Well, you have got a talent. You've got a talent. You could go far with this." And I thought. It's that thing going through my head again. It's like, is she telling me that because I'm an ex-soldier and I've just been injured? Is she yeah. trying to make me feel better than than what I do? Um, I didn't, re- I didn't really listen to her. I went back home uh, with like doing the drinking that again, and then I went over to America with Battleback. Okay. Battleback. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, went over to America. It was sim- same again, just doing like the Paralympic Games with like the Americans, everything like the American injured. Um, and I went to, I, I threw the discus, uh, sorry, I threw the shot put, did all right at that. And then I threw discus and I broke the American record for my category. Nice. Okay. But because I wasn't, classified they couldn't give me they couldn't give me the uh, the distance because I'm, I'm, oh, I'm really? classified okay so it was that what I knew I did it everyone else knew I did it yeah. and I thought if I can do that without any training mm-hmm. what can I do with training so from that day I just turned around to myself, like, right, that's it. I'm not drinking. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and focus on this. And that's what I did. It was sport what got me out of my dark times, my drinking yeah. and the drugs and that. And I took it to a whole new level. I took it to where I wanted like. I think a lot of people, do you know, I don't know, you, you probably had the same experience and, and so have probably a lot of, uh, of lads and girls that have, been through Headley but it used to really piss me off right when I would meet someone new and they'd introduce themselves and I don't know if they were just awkward or what but they would say so when are you starting training for the Paralympics Mark and I was like what do you mean is that like a prerequisite of being disabled do I have to be a Paralympian and it used to really piss me off because I used to and I did I know loads of people dive into sport you know you're like to Joe Townsend who just killed it straight out the box and and what you've achieved and you know all those other guys that we know from Invictus which we'll talk about in a minute 
but it, it just wasn't a thing for me. I had other goals like being wheelchair free and it used to really, really arc me when they'd go, so are you training for the Paralympics, Mark? And they were like, I'm not, I don't want to. But then people, yeah, would, yeah. they'd almost take it like, oh, okay, he's one of the, he's one of the angry ones. He's one of the ones that's given up because he doesn't want to do sport. And I'm like, no, dude, I've just got different fucking goals. I just want to do other things, you know. But yeah, I, I mean, did, it's, I did get that. I did get that, especially especially when I went home. Especially when I went home, and mm-hmm. um, all my silly mates and everything like that, bro. Like, you need to go for Paralympics. You need to do this. <laughs> need to. I'm like, I love it. I love it. You know what I mean? What because like at the time, like I was, I would like. I was drinking, I was doing the drugs, and they were like, you need to go on Paralympics, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do... I don't want to. Mm. It's it's not my thing, but when I when I found when I found it and I wanted to do it, mm. that's when I thought, right? Because, you know what I mean? I used to play football, I used to box beforehand. Right. And it's it, for me, it was, finding them, it was finding two sports I loved as much as them two, to take that place, and straight away from when I like, I didn't want to when I first got injured because I didn't know what my life would bring. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it was sport what got me out of it. And discs and shot put are the, the sports that I love, mm. and they've got me to where I am. But did you did you ever um? Because I, I kind of struggle with it a bit, right? And and it was purely like ego, you know, because before I got injured, I used to fight competitively in uh, full contact kickboxing, Muay Thai, I boxed in the Marines. So I, I, I used to do all this stuff where I thought, oh, that makes me look like a tough guy. Do you know what I mean? And then when they're like, oh, do you want to do some adaptive swimming? I'm like, no, I'm not. Well, well that's for disabled people. Piss off. Do you know what I mean? And and it was hard. That's probably why it took me so long. It just took me a long time to for my ego to go. Actually, Mark, do you know what I mean? It's not the way you're look. You're looking at it wrong. Yeah. You need to, to kind yeah. of flip your mindset. Did you go for anything like that? Obviously, having boxed before and played football, surrounded by yeah. men, banter, pushing, shoving, swearing, spitting, and then oh, do you want to sit on this table and throw a discus? Do you yeah, know what that, I mean? That, it was like it was it was same again like football and stuff like that playing football and then like going for a, going for a pint after and being like, a soldier mate yeah you know what I mean being and an alpha like, male like you want me when I when I first started like you want me to sit on that bit of metal and throw a discus yeah almost like, like it's insulting you do you know what I mean? I'm like, nah, that ain't going to happen. Uh huh. That ain't going to happen. I've not. I've last time I did that we were at school. I, you know what I mean? I said I've grown up since then. Yeah. <laughs> grown yeah. up since then. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not going to sit there and just like throw a discus or throw a shot put. But when I'd seen like when I'd seen what I what I can do with it, yeah, I was like. Ah, that's it that's me yeah because there's there's a there's a focus a purpose a direction something that yeah. you can build on where you can grow as, a, as an individual and if you're that good straight out of the box then you can go and dominate do you know what i mean and, and start to feel the way you felt prior to injury you know for doing something what takes blood sweat tears sacrifice discipline hard work and dedication 
So that's what that that's what that's what got me out of that dark hole. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so my my story, that bit of my story, is exactly the same as Tyson Fury's. Oh, really? But like, he's he, like because he did he did his boxing, got to where he wanted to be, couldn't go any like didn't want to go any further. So he turned to the drink, he turned to the drugs, he was doing all that, and then he trained again and went back into boxing. Mm-hmm. And now he's now he's getting like millions and millions of pounds telling his talks. <laughs> Is that I what you wanted to do as well? I did it first. I did it first. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and, You're gonna uh, take a few more punches to the face first, yet though. I'm gonna go knock on his door. He only lives in Morecambe. I'm gonna knock on his door and have a word with him. But yeah, like I didn't, I didn't think, I didn't think I'd get out of that that dark hole. But sport got me out of there, and I'm like really thankful for it. I really am. And now, discussing shot part, as we both know, we're on the the list for Invictus. So tell us a little bit about that. What Was Canada your first Invictus in 2017? Canada was my first Invictus. Yeah. Uh, I'd, gone, I'd, I'd, gone for, I'd gone for more. I'd gone for more, but I didn't get selected. Okay. Um, I never got selected, so I turned, I turned around to my wife when I, I think it was what were the what were the one before Canada Florida, Florida. Florida weren't it? Mm-hmm. I've yeah. gone I've gone for that one, uh didn't get selected. And I turned around to my wife and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I can't put blood, sweat and tears into this and like not get nowhere. Because mm-hmm. uh, when I got the email saying I've not been not been selected, I was literally like with all the hard work I put in, I was literally like in tears, yeah. thinking I've done that much work and I've not got nowhere. I said I'm not doing it again. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the emails come through again to apply. I didn't know that they come through, but Becky had applied for me. Okay. So she sent mine off for Canada, right? And it come through. Oh, like. You've been accepted to come on to the trials for the Invictus Games. I went, what's this? I said, I ain't filled nothing out. Mm. And she went, I've done it because I know you can do it. Did you get mad with that? I got mad because I told her I didn't want to do it again. Uh But I thought to myself, she believes in me. She knows I can do it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give it another go. So I went for it. I did what I had to do, um, and yeah, I would. I would literally. Where where had we been? We were driving in the car after it. After it all, I'd done all the all the the uh, whole thing, and we were driving somewhere in the car. I was driving. It was the day the emails were coming out. Whether you've been selected or not. Okay. I'm driving along one-handed. You know what I mean? One hand on my adaptions. Yeah. Becky's got my Becky's got my form. She's checking my email. She's like, keep keeps refreshing refresh, it. Refresh, 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 refresh. Wait for the... <laughs> yeah. refreshing, refreshing it, refreshing it. And it's like, oh, it's not come through yet, it's not come through. And I'm on the motorway. 
I'm on the motorway and I'm driving. <laughs> she's refreshed it. She went, it's here. It's here. I've got it. So she's opened it. She's read it. And she went, you're in. Nice. And me not thinking, I've gone, fucking get in. And let go of the steering right. wheel. Let go of the steering <laughs> wheel. Everything off the adaptions. Car's going like that. And I'm like, shit. Because <laughs> I got it. And I'm like, we're like, I just didn't think where I were. Okay. Yeah. I just had that news. I've just gone, get in. Everything off. Nothing on the steering wheels. Nothing. Um, but yeah, that was like one of the best emails like I've had. Yeah, for a long time from where I've been to where I'm gonna go. Yeah, uh, and it was just working, working hard to get like get to kind of doing the training mm-hmm. and so on. Because you did the you did the Canada Games as well, didn't you? I think that's the first time we really met, wasn't it, over in Canada? But we didn't compete because I didn't do shot put discus in Canada. Um. So I don't think we, I think we, we had crossed paths several times, but we were in different arenas. Yeah, crossed, paths, crossed paths at Headley Court and everything like that. When you come in to help some of the guys out with the walking. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, so we crossed paths that way, but we only got that like bond, if you will, when we were going over to the games and that. And it's funny, isn't it? Because when you turn up to events like that, for, for me and you, being at the far end of the spectrum as triple amputees, you're walking around these hotels looking for other triple amputees and you're sizing them up like, right, he's a triple amputee. Does he look like a swimmer? Does he look like a shot putter? Does that guy look like he can hand cycle? Am I going to be getting... And you spend these couple of days kind of eyeing everyone up that's not in your own team, yeah. trying, to, trying to suss them all out and figure them out. I found it really confusing the first year, like the classifications and... You know, you turn up at Rowan and the guy beside me has got two arms and I'm like, I think you're yeah, in the wrong yeah. race, mate. Do you know what I mean? Um, um, it, it is it is weird. Uh, but what a buzz, what a buzz it were turning up in Canada, getting on that coach from the airport to your hotel and every street you're going down, there's flags. I am Invictus. I am this. Yeah. I am Invictus. Uh, and then once you got to your hotel, it was like an Invictus party, weren't it? Everyone every was night. And... Every night was like there was the lobby was crazy in Canada. Like when you walk in the in the hotel, there yeah. I remember like steel bands, and I remember people uh, doing like what they call where they wear the clogs and doing the special dancing yeah, yeah. That, that was another night then you had some french thing going on the next night it was just like a constant party it was either party or compete do you know what i mean just like yeah, it, it were pro- it were pro- i thought like canada were a proper good buzz as well because like all the countries were in one hotel yes absolutely so you got that it, it it were bonding with other other guys as well mm-hmm. uh, having that morale and there were always someone there you could talk to yeah no matter what like mm-hmm. and you used to, you used to get you used to get a lot of people just coming off the streets yeah because they had no idea what was happening and, mm-hmm. and, and ask you for your autographs and that oh, are you part of the invictus game yeah, yeah and it's like 
Jesus Christ, you know what I mean? But it were a proper buzz. The restaurants and that were all in the same hotel, so you didn't really have to venture out that far because no. you had a steakhouse and that in the hotel. Underground um, shopping centres. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, was it, it was brilliant. How did you do the first year? I can't remember. Uh bronze in shot put. Mm-hmm. Gold in discus. Okay. So yeah, I mean you're very early on anyway in, in your like progression as a professional athlete at that point, isn't you? So that's a hell of a haul to come away with on, on your first, I mean, international, was that your first international event? The first international event. And it was with all the work I put in, I just wanted to come away with something to show how hard I've worked. Yeah. Uh, and my first event was a shot put. And I threw my shot put, got bronze. Mm-hmm. And I got on that podium. And I was literally in tears because I got that something to bring home yeah. to show how hard I've worked. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I got my gold. And it, it might sound stupid, but it, yeah, it's a gold medal, but it didn't bother me as much as my bronze medal because I that would like I just wanted something to bring home to show how hard I've worked. Yeah. And that bronze medal without one thing, do you know what I mean? It'd have been different the other way around. Yeah, I'd have probably cried at the gold medal if it were the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just having that one thing I was taking on. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying, mate. Um, we won't go into Australia and how well you did at Australia. We don't want to talk about that. Yeah, was... we'll go into <laughs> Australia. How, how did we because... get on in Australia? <laughs> because in Australia, we, we um, did compete. We did compete against each other. We did compete um, because... And you hammered me. Because I wanted, like, with me, with Canada, because I only picked discus and shot put, and then over in Canada, they they were the first two days of the games. So you had a holiday so, then? So after that, I was done. I was going right. there, like, going to support other people and that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so Australia, I wanted to pick another sport to like push myself as well so I picked the discus and shot put again mm-hmm. and I picked the indoor rowing I picked the four minute and the one minute um, but I didn't really know who I'd be up against until mm-hmm. like the Invictus started doing the training camps and that Right, and then when I turned up to the training camp and I seen like you floating about in the indoor rowing and that, I thought bit of competition going on, mm-hmm. bit of like two triple amputees going at it. Um, so as soon as I'd seen you and I knew you were doing the rowing, I had to do something just to make you think like I couldn't do it. Okay. I didn't want to give I didn't want to give my, my strategy away. You know, we're I mean? on the same team, dude. You're not supposed to be mentally fucking with me. We're on the same team. <laughs> um but yeah, we're good. Do you know what I mean? Like the indoor rowing. It sucked, man. Like yeah. every, everything about rowing sucks. Like the training, six hours in the of, yeah. of rowing and on a saturday six hours on a sunday then i drive home like three four five hours it was just it was brutal wasn't it, yeah, it was brutal and um, it was 
yeah, like when when it got because rowing were the first first competition for us, weren't it? Yeah, that were that it had swapped around, so that it would rowing the second day in, I think it was second and third day in or something, um, and just walking out in front of that crowd and the buzz because where are it where are herbs were because mm-hmm. we were sat there and just in front of us was all the UK supporters yeah we were on that side weren't we so that yeah. was that was a bonus you had everyone pushing you and telling you to go and yeah yeah they're up the road where we I'm, I'm getting away with two, two gone. silvers. Yeah, I, I feel sick just thinking about it, mate. I, I never want to do that ever again. But you know, you did the shot put and discus again in in Australia, smashed me. Um, what did you get? What did you pick up that time? I know, but tell everyone else. <laughs> I got a golden discus. Uh, I remained discus champion. Yeah, and then I got gold in shot put. Let, all right, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. I want to know this again. I love talking about people's mindsets and getting in their heads. Now, you were returning as the discus champion. You'd already got a bronze and shot part. I'd not, I'd not done it before, but you know, I keep myself fit and I'm athletic, or whatever. Did, did you have any thoughts of like? I've got everything to lose here because if this dickhead turns up and just throws further than me and gets lucky, then what do I do? Do you know what I mean? Because that, that's kind of what would, I think would have been running through my head. It's like a boxer, you know, you're the champ and then some bloke, like yeah. when Rock, Rocky comes in to fight Apollo, Apollo's got everything to lose. Rocky's got everything to gain. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's not that. It's just like Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz. Right. But did, did any of those thoughts? I mean, in your head? Uh, a lot of things were going through my head, like because I were looking, I were looking at everyone who we were who we were competing against. Mm-hmm. Right, I were looking at everyone, and what I, what I, I try I try and figure out how they're gonna throw or what are, like what are their injuries before asking them. Um, it, it was just thinking and the first, the f- what were there? Were there seven of us? I think there were, yeah. Yeah, I think there were. I think there were about seven of us, weren't there? Um, one thing, one thing what did me on the discus was they'd lost, they'd lost my frame. I remember because you were you were second. That the like Albanian guy was first, and he had some real rickety yeah. piece of shit that was held together with masking tape. And then you were second, but your your seat hadn't turned up. Yeah, they'd lost they'd lost, they'd lost my frame, and I'm like mm. that that played on me as well. Yeah. Uh, you don't you don't really want that when you're going into a like a competition as big as the Invictus Games. You don't want your, your frame because you that frame were built for me right custom made but it, but if I if I were to sit on someone else's seat mm-hmm. if I had to have done that I could not have thrown how I throw right 
Yeah, I get it. Um, and that was going through my head, and I was just watching how I was watching how other people are acting in while waiting to go and throw. I was watching like what they're doing, what the techniques are, how how are they calming down, or are they calming down, or are they psyching themselves up? Um, but it weren't until I had to go, I would last because they couldn't find my frame. Mm-hmm. So I would last, and then my frame turned up. And I was mo- mainly more worried, more watching you and the guy that went before me mm-hmm. because, like, I remember, like. You nick, you nick my, you nick my technique. I did because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you nick my technique, right? Yeah. And uh, I was just what, like, I was just watching you use my technique, and I was just like, if he, if he, like, beats me on my imagine technique, that, imagine right. If you if. If you'd have thrown like a fair length distance, mm-hmm. I think I'd have just like got up and walked off. I think because I'd have, I'd have gone, now he's using my technique. And the thing what got me as well was because my coach were watching, my coach were watching from the UK. Okay. And you were using my technique, right? Uh huh. And I was watching the guy before me. Yeah, he had a bit of a, he had a, a bit of a decent throw, but from when he threw his first one, I knew I could beat him. Right, right. But then when I got up, when I got up to throw, it was like I was using my own technique. I was comfy in my own frame, but it was. Loads of things going through my head, uh, like just the pressure. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't calm myself down from them losing my frame. Yeah, I know what you mean. I couldn't calm myself down, and it was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck up here. I'm gonna fuck up. Um, but luckily enough, yeah, I'd, I'd be. I'd, I'd come away with gold, so I remain the discus champion. But mm-hmm. what I what did me was <laughs> my coach had phoned me the next day, and she would tell she were talking to me. I said I said yeah. I said I just couldn't calm down because they'd lost my frame, and I only got it back at the last minute. Uh, and my coach would tell me what the commentators were saying because we don't hear the commentary. Right, okay. everyone else, like everyone who's watching it on TV. Here's the commentary. Mm-hmm. And when I got up to throw and I was using my technique, the commentary turned around and said, oh, well, here's Dave Watson from the UK using Mark Ormerod's technique. And I went, yes! <laughs> I went, are you, like, my coach told me that. I went, are you fucking joking me? Yes! That's brilliant. Right? Uh, and I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not having that. Not having that straight all. on, straight on Twitter, right? You fucking idiot. You know I mean? 
Do you know what I mean? He's do, he's been doing he's been doing the sport five minutes now. I'm 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 nicking his technique. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, it was a cracking event, though, mate. It was it was same when we were doing the rowing. It was same when we were doing the rowing. We were, like do you know what I mean? Um, you you took your legs off. Yeah. Right, and you used your prosthetic arm. Right, mm-hmm. but when I were rowing. I kept my legs on and I used my prosthetic arm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the commentary, it were like, look at Mark already. He's a triple amputee. Uh, he's lost his right hand, blah, 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 blah. And then they were, it, they'd get to me and it'd be like, look at Dave Watson here. He's doing really well. And I'm thinking, like, this is what my coach has been telling me. And he, like, I'm like, yeah, but. I'm a triple amputee as well. Yeah. Fucking mention that. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I know what you mean, mate. <laughs> um, but yeah, like Australia, it was, it was different, a lot different to Canada. Um, yeah. Like we turned, like I said, we turned up to Canada, everything was done. There were Invictus everywhere. But when we turned to Australia, we were just like we were turning up on a holiday because nothing was there. Nothing were in Victor's stop until like four days before, and we were there mm-hmm. a week and a half or something. Mm-hmm. So, walking around Australia in that, nothing in Victor's stop, it was just weird. like plays on your mind as well. Yeah, I, I think I prefer Canada, but the overall experience for for all of it was is amazing, mate. You know, and I've, I've, I really yeah. enjoyed the journey. I won't ever compete again because I think you need to give other people that experience and that opportunity. I'll definitely go out as either a, a mentor or a spectator, you know, and have a couple of beers and actually enjoy the experience instead of being constantly on a competition treadmill. We're both, we're both ambassadors for the Invictus Games, aren't we? We're helping the others yeah. go through, but we're, uh, nothing's going on at the moment, so we can't do yeah. it. Hopefully when all this COVID stuff you know, disappears. Uh, we'll get some news, find out. I don't know if they're going to stick with the Hague for the next one or what, but whatever it is, if I can get over there now, I'm going to get over there and I'm just going to enjoy that that atmosphere again without any, yeah, yeah. you know, any worry of competing or training or dieting or sleeping or any of that stuff. Just have some fun. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mate, I could chat to you for hours. I've just looked in the top corner now. We've been at it for nearly two hours. We, I might have to... Uh, give you a call again and get you back on for another episode, but I'm going to wrap it up for now, unless there's anything else that you want to quickly dive into. Me and you have took like now the similar journeys, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. Doing the the motivational speaking and trying to help other people overcome whatever they're going through. Yeah, that's it, mate. We is we end up in these quite unique positions where I'm sure, like me in the beginning, you think, well, there's not much I can do in my life. And then as things move on and you meet other people and, and you get involved in things like Invictus, actually you realize how many opportunities come out of it. You know, being a speaker, writing books, doing podcasts, you growing your social media to help people, inspire people, motivate people, you know, particularly I'm not gonna go in this rabbit hole because I said we've been on here a while, but you know, the effect, the positive effect you can have on children, 
when you share your story with them, change their mindset. You know, there's so many opportunities that come from it. And, you know, you're doing a, a phenomenal job of grabbing them and just running with them, mate. Well, listen, mate, thank you for giving up two hours of your day to, uh, to share your story with everyone listening. Where can people find you? Because I know you're trying to grow your social media. Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I've got my website, DW Motivation. Uh, my Instagram is Dave Watson Motivation. Um, and you'll like everything, everything's on my website as well. So all my LinkedIn and my Instagram and that is all on there. So you'll find it all on there. Um, but yeah, take a look. And I will put physical links in the show notes for this and, and across all my social media when I'm promoting it. If you forget what Dave's just said about where he is on social media, or I forget to put the show the links in the show notes, just Google the UK's second best looking triple amputee. Obviously I'll come up as the first. <laughs> Dave will come up as the second. So you should be able to find all his details if you do that. Mate, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. It's no, been great one. catching up with you, mate. Um, and I will again, I'll give you a call offline and we'll just have a, a quick catch up. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you, mate. No problem. I think that's probably the longest episode of the No Limits podcast that I've ever recorded. I've gone back and forth with this, thinking, should I keep it short and sharp? Should I just talk until we run out of things to say? And do you know what? I'm not going to stress myself out with it. I could have talked to Dave for a lot longer then, but if I'm being honest, I was bursting for a pee. So I found a natural point to bring it to an end. But that was Dave. You know, incredible story. He didn't go into massive amounts of detail like he normally does when he's on stage and he's speaking, but you get the gist of it. He's been through hell. He's hit rock bottom. He's come out the other side. He's refound a purpose, a focus, and a reason to keep moving forward with his life. And that's what he's doing. And now he, like many of us do when, we, when we're in these situations, we get this natural progression to then get to the stage where it comes becomes about contribution and taking your experiences, highs, lows, tragedies, triumphs, and sharing them with the world to help to inspire other people. And that's what Dave is doing now as a motivational speaker. Now, I'm going to put all the links you need to follow Dave on social media in the show notes here. Please go give him a follow. Go give him a comment. Um, let him know what you thought of the show. And let me know what you thought. As always, try, you know, do me a favor. Subscribe, like, comment where you can. Share, review, all that good stuff that helps to put us out there. Climb the rankings and get to that number one spot. Guys, thanks as always for all your support. I love it. I appreciate it. I never take it for granted. I will see you next time on the next episode of the No Limits podcast. Mm-hmm.